0: All right. Well, let us now turn to the Word, and we're, we'll be in John chapter 13 today. If you have a Bible, please turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there is few Bibles scattered around the church. They are burgundy, maroon, and you can find the text on page 1070. Um, I just wanted to say, maybe by way of a bit of confession up front, that it is a joy um, and, and a privilege every week to study the Bible. Um, I often have to pinch myself that I'm doing this even still, but there are you know some some uh, topics that are be more exciting than others. Um, I mean I don't want to you know it's the word of God so it's all a blessing um, you know. But last week a topic like false brethren, um, a topic I'm happy to preach on and I think it's necessary when it when it comes up in the text. Um, but you know it's it's one of those kind of harder subjects. Uh, But I love to make much of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I could do that week in and week out and and hope to do that week in and week out and want to do that today and, and have been just super blessed this week in the study and hope some of the fruit of that comes out today. So John chapter 13, verse 31 is where we're going to begin. It says there, when he had gone out, speaking of Judas, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him? If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. Little children, yet a little while, I am with you. You will seek Me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Let's pray. Lord God, we do come to you now in prayer and we come to you now to your word and your word says that the the grass will wither, the flowers will fall off, but the word of the Lord will abide forever. And we find great hope and confidence in that promise that we can today open up your word and know that it is the infallible and errant word of the living God. So I ask today that you might bless the proclamation of your word to the good of all of our souls Please keep me from any flesh or falsehood or error. I pray that just by the power of the Spirit, your word would go forth and you would have your way in this room. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, oftentimes as we open up the the word, the Bible, there's texts that are imperative and there's texts that are indicative. Basically, the imperatives are commands, what to do, and the indicatives are statements of fact, what is true. Repent and believe is an imperative. Um, You have been saved by grace is an indicative. It's a statement of truth. And sermons often are either in the imperative mood, imperative mood, do this, or in the indicative mood, uh, believe this. Imperative may be a little bit easier to preach, to say this is what we should do, what we should believe. Uh, But I think that maybe the indicative at times is more effective when we just glory in Christ and all that He is And our souls are, by the grace of God, changed. So this this sermon today will be in the indicative mood and just hope to glory a bit in in Jesus and this kind of unfolding plan throughout the Scripture. As we see in our text, there's a lot of glory being exchanged here back and forth. There's all sorts of glory going on. It says that now, at this moment, now, the Son of Man is glorified and the Father is glorified in the Son. And if... The Father is glorified in the Son, and the Father will also glorify the Son in Himself and glorify the Son at once. All sorts of glory is being exchanged, and then Jesus tells His disciples that He is leaving, He is departing, and He's going somewhere that they can't go. Now, immediately that may be the cross, right? They're not following Him to the cross, but ultimately that is glory, right? He is going to ascend back to heaven and be in a place that they cannot come. But I want to answer, I want to kind of dive into what is all this glory that is being exchanged? Why is this moment in time so glorious? Why is the Father being glorified in the Son and the Son being glorified in the Father? To do that, to answer that question, I want to go back to the beginning. Not the beginning of John or the New Testament, but the beginning of the Bible. So please turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. This is a text that if... if, If you've been here with me, or maybe it's if I've been here with you these past couple years that we've looked at on multiple occasions and probably will, because I think it's a very foundational text for the rest of Scripture, and I think it's a helpful interpretive text that kind of unlocks, if you will, not in some magical way, but kind of unlocks the rest of the Bible. Genesis 1 and 2, we of course see the creation account, and then we see that man in Genesis 3 has fallen into sin. Adam has failed his assignment from God. Let's read what that assignment is. Actually, in Genesis 2, verse 28, it says that God blessed them, Adam, excuse me, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So Adam has been given this assignment, this creation mandate, from God, that he is to subdue the earth and have dominion over all things. And we see here in Genesis 3 that Adam has failed that commission by the Lord because he has allowed this serpent to creep into the garden, deceive his wife, and question the very authority of God himself. I think the sin begins when Adam allows those things not to happen. Certainly the bite of the fruit is the official act but it began when he did not rule over the garden as he was supposed to, but allowed this serpent to creep in, deceive his wife, and question the authority of God. He's also given a charge to be fruitful and multiply. And there's a, he, he fails in this assignment as well. And you may say, what are you talking about? They had children, they made children, right? And the earth is full of people. But the idea was not just that they would procreate, but that the earth would be filled with image bearers, worshippers of the living god richard barcelos says it like this he says that the earth was to be filled with sinless sons of god in the special presence of god under the rule of god the idea was not that there would be christ-hating idolaters covering the earth but the idea was that there would be true worshipers without sin on every corner of the earth but of course that fails sin has entered into the world And these mandates have not been accomplished. But we see in the midst of this curse that God gives, there is this glorious promise. There's a glimmer of hope in the midst of all this destruction that has just come because of sin. Genesis 3.14, if you read with me, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat, all the days of your life, I will put enmity or war, animosity, hatred between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, again, this word offspring is also translated seed, maybe more literally. And it can be plural or it can be singular. The Hebrew doesn't reveal which it is. It has to be deduced from the context unlike English where we would just hang an S on the end and you would know it's a plural word. Here it has to be understood from the context. could be either one. I believe that it's plural, that there's going to be enmity between your seed, your offspring, and her offspring for generations. But then look down. He says, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. All of a sudden, he's speaking of one man, one person, one seed or offspring of the woman. And this serpent is going to strike the heel of this man, of this person. But this seed is going to strike the head of this serpent. He's going to do away, undo what the serpent has done here in the garden. James Hamilton says that this is the skull crushing seed of the woman. He is the second Adam who is coming to do what Adam failed to do in the garden. We see just a glimmer of gospel light here in Genesis 3.15, that there is one day in the future going to be a seed from the line of the woman that is going to destroy this old serpent and do away with what was just done. Now, if you're not seeing it just yet, let me read a couple quotes to you. This first one is from a man named Nehemiah Cox. He is a 17th century particular Baptist. I don't think it's a legit sermon without a Baptist from the 1600s. You've got to get one of them in there. Um, but he said this, quoting this or referring to this text, he said, it was from this design of love and mercy that when the Lord God came to fallen man in the garden, in the cool of the day, and found him filled with horror and shame in a consciousness of his own guilt. Now Adam and Eve are experiencing something new in this moment, right? All of a sudden they understand what guilt is. all of a sudden they understand what shame is. all of a sudden, they are unclothed and it is, un- it is dishonorable for them to stand unclothed. They're feeling shame because of their nakedness. And God finds them there in the garden, crushed by their guilt. And he says that he did not execute the rigor of the law upon him in that moment. Remember what the law said, the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And they did, right? They died in that moment, spiritually. They were cut off from God and they were lost as any lost sinner is apart from Christ. Also, their death, their physical death was certain in that moment. They will die. There is no getting around that. But the word said, in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. And God could have just wiped them out there on the spot if he had so pleased to bring the full weight of the law but Cox says he did not do that instead he held a treaty with him which it sh- with which issued in a discovery of grace we see this little promise this little revealing of grace he says by this a door of hope was opened to him in the laying of a new foundation for his acceptance with God and walking well pleasing before him all of a sudden in the midst of this curse there's a little glimmer of hope that there is a new way that man can be right with God, that one day someone is going to come and he's going to kill this serpent and he's going to fix what happened. Jonathan Edwards, he's an 18th century Puritan, American Puritan, Congregationalist, Um, many would say one of the greatest minds America has ever known, brilliant man. He said, as soon as man fell, as soon as this sin happened, Christ entered on his mediatorial work. So in that moment, Christ begins this work as mediator. He says, He stood engaged with the Father to appear as man's mediator and to take on that office when there should be occasion from all eternity. So Christ is prepared to be sent when that moment arises from all eternity past. He says this was the first revelation of the covenant of grace, or the new covenant, the first drawing of the light of the gospel on So we see this little glimmer of gospel hope here in Genesis 3.15. Imagine if you were in a dark room, a huge room, one of these gigantic warehouses, 25,000 square feet. And it is just a big square concrete walls and it's pitch black. There's no light whatsoever in the room. You can't see your hand and you have to try to find your way out. And you don't know if there's machinery in this place or stuff on the ground. And you're kind of groping around and... And, and you're at one end, and it's just this giant room. And at the very, very far corner, in a pitch black, a door begins to open. Just the slightest little crack, and a little light peeks in. That's what's just happened in this moment. One little sliver of gospel light has been revealed in the very opening chapters of the book of Genesis. Genesis. Edwards goes on, he says, Thus you see how that gospel light, which dawned immediately after the fall of man, gradually increases. And as we read the Old Testament, we see that this gospel light is slowly but surely, it is revealed more and more to us as it points us to Christ. And I believe that this verse is a verse that we ought to look at the rest of the Scriptures through this promise. As you read the Old Testament, you want to have in the back of your mind a promise that there is someone who's going to come and fix all this mess, right? Someone's going to come and strike the head of this serpent, do away with what he did in the garden. And as men are come forward, these mighty men of God, we're, we're asking the question, is this the guy? Right? Is this him? You have this man, Noah. He comes on the scene pretty quickly, right? And God is about to judge the entire earth. But it says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the lord and he chooses this one man and his family to spare them from this judgment that is going to cover the whole earth And if you think about the story of noah it is basically the flood is basically god decreating all that he just created it says in the in the creation account that the heat the water was as a heap it was just piled up the earth was covered with water and he and he separated the waters and he made the dry land but in the flood the waters come back, and the earth again is covered. Also in the book of Genesis, in the beginning, we see that God creates life, obviously, and He fills the earth with human life and animal life and sea life, and in the flood, in, the, in this judgment, He erases all that He had just created. Now we have Noah, who is kind of like a second Adam figure. He's starting over, and, and God gives Noah the same mandates He gave to Adam to be fruitful and multiply, is this the Savior? Is this the guy that's going to fix everything? Well, of course, Noah sins, right? He gets drunk and he shames himself. He's not the guy. Then we have this guy, Abraham. Maybe this is the man. There's promises given to Abraham. He's going to bless the entire world through his family somehow. Everyone's going to be blessed. He's going to make a new nation from this one man. And it seems like this might, this might be him. But we learn that Abraham is a liar and he kind of throws his wife under the bus and doesn't protect her and saves his own skin by saying, this is not even my wife. And we have this man, Moses. He's meek, right? He's mild. He's not proud and boastful. He's not about himself. And he actually acts as a priest, often interceding for the people of God, staying God's judgment, or at least attempting to stay God's judgment. Maybe this is the guy. He's about the people of God, but he sins, right? He fails. He strikes the rock and he, and he, and he, misrepresents the Lord, and God does not even let him go into the promised land after all of those years. But then Saul comes on the scene. It's got to be Saul, right? Saul is this big warrior figure. He's, he's Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime, right? He's head and shoulders above the rest of the people, but we see certainly that it's not Saul very, very quickly. David comes on the scene and on and on it goes. And we see these figures that seem to be Godly man that God is raising up to fix all that was broken. But the Old Testament closes and there's no answer given. There is no redeemer to be found. There is no promised. This promise has not been fulfilled. Someone has not come to do away with this old serpent. But when the fullness of time had come, Paul writes, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see in this, in this statement here, in the, at the fullness of time, at that perfect moment that God had chosen from eternity past, Christ comes. And He sends forth His Son. And it says that He was born of a woman. He takes on our nature. He becomes one of us because a man has to be the sacrifice, and a man has to perfectly obey the law. It says that he was born under the law. He took on our responsibility. He took on this burden that we have of the law to fulfill it with a perfect righteousness. It says that he, he came to redeem those that were under the law. He procured our victory. It was Jesus who bought our freedom, bought our forgiveness, and lastly, so that we might receive adoption as sons, He brings us into glory. This is the solution for this problem that was given all the way back in Genesis 3. I want to read you a quote. It's a little bit long, but I think it's helpful. Again, this is a a pastor, one of my my professors, his name is Richard Barcelos. And he gives this answer. This is basically a walk through the Bible. He gives this answer as the, the Bible's solution to what happened in Genesis 3. He says, the riddle to be solved is how and who brings the sin-stained, cursed creation to its new existence. The answer is the seed of the woman, the son of Abraham, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the prophet greater than Moses, one greater than Joshua, the son of David, the child of the virgin, the branch of the Lord, the righteous one, the suffering servant of the Lord. He is the embodiment of all that Israel was not. He is the one who went forth for the Lord to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. He is the Lord whom you seek, who suddenly came to his temple. He is the messenger of the covenant. He is the one conceived of the Holy Spirit named Jesus, who will save his people from their sin. He is the Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. He is the son of God that was called out of Egypt. He is the one that was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He is the one that said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He is the one who said, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And now judgment is upon this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He is the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He is the word that became flesh. He is the Son of God. He is the one who both cleansed the temple of God and claimed to be the temple of God. He is the one who said, all authority has been given me, given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore. He is the one who suffered and then entered into glory according to the Old Testament scriptures. He is the one who has all things in subjection under his feet. He is the one who is head over all things to the church. He is the one who is bringing many sons to glory. He is He who is coming again, so that He who He has called may gain His glory. He is the one that will usher in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. He is the one that was sent by the Father in the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem His people and that the redeemed might receive the adoption as sons. In other words, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. The skull-crushing seed of the woman, the incarnate son of God, the second man, the last Adam, the Lord of glory. That is why in our text we see all this glory being exchanged. Because that promise that was given back in Genesis 3 is finally and perfectly being fulfilled in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we look back at Genesis, or excuse me, John now, John chapter. 13, verse 31. Jesus says that, it says in the text, as soon as he departed, and that seems to be significant that Judas has just gone out, as it said. And we read last week, that he immediately went out and it was night. And I don't think that John just threw that in there because it was night. He likes to play off light and dark or good and evil. And he, he starts in the very beginning of the book where he said that in him and Jesus was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And John likes to use this theme of light and righteousness in Jesus And he says that Judas went out into the night to do this dastardly deed as he's going to turn over Jesus. But the departure of Judas has really set this plan in full motion. The gears are now turning. The authorities are going to be brought out. Jesus will be arrested, brought before Pilate, and eventually he will be sent to this shameful death and executed. And he says that, that is the thing, it seems, that is, That is the occasion of all this glory. Son of man is now glorified. God is glorified in him. God is glorified in him. God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. But we may ask the question, how is God glorified through Jesus being falsely accused, arrested and killed? Why, Why all this? Why all this glory? Don Carson says that this is the supreme moment of divine disclosure. His deity is on full display at the cross. He says this is the the, the greatest moment of displayed glory is the shame of the cross. How does Jesus Christ get glory by dying a brutal death? I want to look at just three brief ways that we see His glory on display at the cross. There are a million different things that we could see that I could talk about, that we could all give our thoughts, but I just want to look at three. Number one, at the cross we see His providence is on display. His providence is on display. That's not a word that we use all that often. What is providence? Second London Baptist Confession says that God, the good creator of all things, in His infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creatures and things from the greatest to the least. So providence is God working in His creation day in and day out. And we speak of providence when we recite the verse that we all love, Romans eight twenty eight, that He works all things for good, right? For those that love Him and that are called according to His purpose. How does He work everything for good? Is He just constantly responding to events and trying to make the best out of things? Even if He's doing that, He's still somehow intervening. But providence says that He is constantly at work governing His universe, His world, but He does so in such a way that it doesn't do violence to the will of the creature. It doesn't we, we still do what we want to do. We live our lives. But somehow, mysteriously, God's purpose can always be accompli- accomplished in the midst of all of our free decisions. Consider this story that we just saw that began in Genesis and culminates here at the cross. Who could bring out this plan But God. Who could accomplish all of these things? Who but God could fulfill a promise given in a garden thousands of years ago? Thousands of years ago. Who but God could orchestrate in the midst of millions of free will decisions that men made from that point to the cross? Imagine all the things that people are doing going about our day. Imagine all the things you do in one day. All the decisions you make. I'm going to go here. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. There was a red light. Had to turn here. Boom. Look who I just ran into. How did I find Matthew here, right? The store, right? How, how do these things happen? God is at work through things we would perceive as big acts and small things constantly leading us and guiding us to orchestrate his plan. And he, and he does that meticulously, that Jesus goes to the cross perfectly as was. Designed, yet we have millions of people making millions of decisions throughout time, but God's plan was still accomplished. Who but God could work against this plot of Satan from the garden to destroy the seed of the woman? Consider this attack upon the godly line and this attack upon Israel, really, from the beginning. There's a curse given, and God says that there's going to be enmity between the woman and the serpent. And what happens with her first two sons? One of them kills the other one, right? And it seems that right away, Satan's won. He's done it. He's, he's cut out the godly line. One of them gave an offering to the Lord that was accepted. One gave an offering that was not. I think there's some implications there that, that Cain knew what he was supposed to bring and he kind of wanted to bring his own thing. But he's mad. He's bitter at his brother and eventually takes his life. And it seems like, wow, Satan really has the victory here. The good brother is dead and the evil brother is alive. But Of course, Seth is born and this line continues. We see Pharaoh killing all the firstborn in Egypt, trying to wipe out all these children. We see Esau trying to kill Jacob. We see Saul trying to kill David. We see Herod killing all of the male children under two years old in Bethlehem when Jesus is born. Only God could orchestrate this perfect Plan in the midst of all of this opposition that has come against this godly line, and he is glorified in showing us all that he is a promise-keeping God. Not only does he make promises and keep them, but through his providence, he has the ability, right, to carry them out. Someone said that the Old Testament is promises made, and the New Testament is promises kept. Now, as men and women, we 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 like to try to keep our promises, right? We want to be, we want to be people of integrity. But there are there are things that can get in our way that we that we can't we have no control over. If I was to call Erica and have all these plans and say, all right, I'm picking you up after work, 4:15. We're going to Ashland. I got dinner plans. We're going dancing. We don't dance. <laughs> <laughs> I don't dance. Um, <laughs> And we're, and I got, I got flowers and it's all worked out and I'm going to pick you up at 415 and we're going to be there by five and I got these reservations six months ago and it's going to be great. And I pull out of here and a telephone pole fell down and it's gridlocked, right? And I'm stuck and I'm, come on. Now I got plans. I made promises to my wife as great as my intentions might have been. There are things that are outside of our control, right? We cannot always fulfill our, our promises, even when we desperately want to but god is a promise keeping god and not only does he keep his promises but he has all ability all authority all power to fulfill and carry out those promises and for us as believers this ought to be an occasion for much encouragement right much hope in our lord that as we read the promises of god in his word we can know that his promises will not fail we read earlier, John chapter 6. and It says there that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. You see there that all that ultimately we are to do is to have faith, is right? to look upon the Lord Jesus Christ and believe. And anyone that does that, he says, will have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the day the last day that means to you beloved is that god's promise to you will not fail even though your fake is your faith is your fake (laughs) your faith maybe it's it's weary right sometimes i mean sometimes our faith is is it's just it's on life support right it's just limping by i mean if we're honest sometimes our faith is just it's just come on i'm trying to believe lord but what's going on in my life right Praise God, it's not about the strength of our faith, it's about the strength of our Savior. And the promise of God is that when we look upon Him and believe, that person has eternal life. And on that day, when He gloriously resurrects the the, the righteous and the wicked, He says, I will raise Him up on that day, and it will be to glory, it will be to our eternal bliss and joy in the presence of Christ. And I might ask the question, have you looked upon the Son in this way? Have you looked upon the Son and believed? Have you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you taking Him at His word here? That all He demands is faith. All He requires is faith. It's not about our good works. It's not about the things that we do for God. Those are good, but those are secondary. Those come after, right? This happens, that we look upon the Son and believe. And if you do, if you have And if you will, and the promise is sure that you will have eternal life. He makes promises that He keeps because He can work them out in His providence. And His providence is on display giving the triune God maximum glory at the cross. That God could bring all of these events together to accomplish His perfect plan. Secondly, we see at the cross... This glory that is being revealed, we see his righteousness is on display. We see his righteousness. Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 3, verse 25. Speaking of Christ, he says, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. And a propitiation is a wrath quenching sacrifice, it is a sacrifice that satisfies God's demand for justice. He put Christ forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith, Right to look upon the Son and believe. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. Now, what does that mean there? Does that mean that in the Old Testament God just kind of winked at people's sin? He just kind of glossed over their sin? Hey, it's no... It's no big deal. You just kind of, you know, sweep it to the side. I'll, I'll, I'll deal with that later. Is that what he means? Yesterday, uh, Erica had bought Charlotte a little dustpan to kind of help up, and she was making a mess. And Erica asked her to go, you know, clean up your mess. So she was being helpful, and she was being what a three-year-old does. And she got her little dustpan, and she swept it all under the fridge. <laughs> <laughs> Now, is that what God was doing in the past with with their sin? Just kind of, you know, uh, I don't want to look at it. I'll just sweep it out of the way and no big deal. I I don't believe that's what Paul is getting at. I think what he's trying to say is that God had not previously at any time in history given a public universal display like this of his holy hatred for sin and evil. The cross is God's justice poured out upon his own son. He had primarily in the past worked with one nation now they were to be a, a light to the rest of the world they were to be peculiar so that people would look at them and want to know their God primarily he works within Israel but the cross is a statement to the entire world that all sin every single last sin will be judged by the wrath of God do you do you realize that that every sin that's ever been committed will be under the wrath of God. Every sin that you have ever committed will feel the full rate weight of the wrath of God. And every sin that every unbeliever has committed will feel the full weight of the wrath of God. Let me read to you. John Piper might say it better than I can. He says, We must know the supremacy of His justice. He will render all accounts settled in the end, in the universe, either on the cross, or in hell. There is no sin that was swept underneath the fridge. They are either judged upon the broad shoulders of our Savior at the cross, or they will be judged upon the heads of those that have rejected Christ in their condemnation. But His perfect righteousness, His absolute and utter seriousness when it comes to sin and evil was on full display at Calvary. And His Son... His Son is the sacrificial Lamb that He offers up for us and for our salvation. Not only that, but His Son is the only sacrifice that would have satisfied His perfect righteousness. Again, I believe there's hope here for us as we look at the righteousness of God on display at the cross. Take heart, believer, that as you grieve over injustice in this world, as you grieve over evil and wickedness that is that is rampant across the globe, as you long for a day when righteousness will reign, when sin will be done away with, know that that day is come. All accounts will be settled. There is no wicked deed that will be left unchecked. But praise God as we look to the cross, it is not just wrath and justice that we see. Lastly, number three, we see His mercy on display. We see His mercy. Listen to this verse. I ran across this verse this week. Psalm 85.10. It says, Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. And I think we see something to that effect at the cross. We see righteousness and we see mercy come together in perfect unity. I think it could be said that the cross is really like a diamond where we see all of the facets of the attributes of God perfectly in harmony there. But we certainly see His mercy and His justice side by side. Now remember, mercy is us not getting what we do deserve. Right When we, when we don't get what we should, that is mercy. When you get pulled over for speeding, I know you would never do that, but when you get pulled over for speeding, and the officer lets you go, that was mercy, right? You should have got a ticket. The law said he could have given you a ticket, and he lets you go, that was mercy. And God's abundant, glorious mercy is on display in full force at the cross. There's a song, some of you probably know it. I'm going to read it to you. I won't sing it. Just a couple stanzas. It's in our hymnal, uh, and the title is Hallelujah, What a Savior. It says man of sorrows what a name for the son of god who came ruined sinners to reclaim hallelujah what a savior bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place condemned he stood sealed my pardon with his blood hallelujah what a savior the Mercy of God is on display at the cross because the reality is Christ does not belong on that tree. And he really has no business hanging from that cross and losing his life. But as the song said, it is ruined sinners that he came to reclaim. It is broken, rebellious people that he came to reconcile to himself. There is nothing that he had done that ought to have led him to that cross other than His perfect obedience to stand condemned in the place of sinners. Beloved, that is mercy. That is mercy that Christ would give this perfect sacrifice, that Christ would shed His own blood, that He would go there and be treated as a guilty man, as a criminal. That the very people that He came to offer salvation to would be the very people that would shout out, crucify Him, crucify Him. I don't think we could see any more mercy displayed than there at the cross of Christ. Again, there's great hope here. There's great hope to be found in His mercy as we go through life. We all struggle at times, right? We all have failures. We all have shortcomings. We all look in the mirror sometimes and are saddened by our behavior, by the things that we said, by how we treated someone, what have you. But as the song says, though your sins are many, His mercy is more. It was mercy that hung Him on that cross. It was mercy that brought your freedom and your forgiveness. And it it is mercy today that is keeping and preserving His saints. I want to say that if you're here today and you are Outside of Christ, if you have not trusted in this Savior, then today, mercy is being offered. Abundant, perfect mercy that is greater than all of your sin is being offered today through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus. And let me just say, you want this mercy. You want this mercy. We do not want justice for our own sin. we cry about justice for many other things but we don't want true biblical justice for our own sin because that would mean that we would pay the penalty but god's mercy has been displayed upon the cross and if you trust in him then this mercy would be bestowed on you even here now today we've seen in this text glory is being exchanged father to the son the son to the father And through the cross, we see that the Father is glorified as His Son in perfect obedience willingly fulfills this plan that He was sent for. He reveals at the cross the perfect justice of God to a fallen humanity. He reveals the perfect mercy of God as His Son is offered as a substitute that all that would look to Him and believe might live. And we see that the Son is glorified as His Ministry is vindicated. His claims to deity are validated. He's given a name that is above all names. He ascends the hill of the Lord. He commands those ancient gates of heaven to be opened. And the God-man, Jesus the Christ, enters into heaven, sits at the right hand of majesty on high, and fulfills that promise of Genesis 3.15 that someone would one day come and crush the head of this serpent. Glory to the Father, glory to the Son, glory to the Spirit, three in one. So, beloved, as I close this this, this section, I just want to encourage you to look to the glory that is revealed at the cross. Look to the glory of His providence, that He is working in all things at all times. As I was speaking with Trevor this morning, we were talking about not just, you know, we love providence when it's good. (laughs) We love it when it's to our favor, right, when it's a blessing, but there's, Good providence, and there is, as we perceive it, bad providence. Some would call it a frowning providence. But God is working at all times, as my brother said, for our sanctification, Right, that we would be conformed to the image of His Son. Look to the glory of His righteousness, that one day all accounts will be settled. No sin will go unchecked. And may that give us hope that evil will not always prevail, but may it also kind of spur us on for those around us that are outside of Christ, that they might come to know Him. And lastly, look at the glory of His mercy. He bled and He died that we might live, that we might die to self and live for Him. Amen? Let me pray.